0: There's a race going on in the industrial sector to modernize, technologize, as well as decarbonize. Following five years of underinvestment, industrial companies have a great deal of catching up to do, and that may be a setup for some outsized investment opportunities. Hello, and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, and with me is Mike Philbrick from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our very special guest is Ivana Delevska, founder and chief investment officer at Spear Invest, sponsor of the Spear Alpha ETF, ticker SPRX. So stay tuned, hit that subscribe button, like us, and let us know what you think.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests.
0: This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Ivana, welcome to Raise Your Average, and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Pierre.
0: So, Ivana, to kick things off, tell us about your your background, the arc of your career, and your journey to launching your own advisory firm and the Spear Alpha ETF.
2: Sounds great. So I spent 15 years researching industrial and industrial technology companies. And what I realized over the past three to five years is that technology is becoming a core aspect of a lot of traditional enterprises. So previously, technology would have been one small subsector that was mainly consumer focused. So you had a lot of home delivery, streaming, more recently telehealth, but those would be the type of companies that fall, that into um, in, into technology, and now what we're seeing is technology is a critical part of pretty much every enterprise and every industrial company. So what we try to do is understand what products this company use, how are they going about their digitalization journey, and that's how we find a lot of our investment opportunities.
0: What, what has your, your research uncovered? You know, what are some of the sort of glaring opportunities that, that you like to talk about?
2: Absolutely. Industrial companies and even broader enterprises are behind in technology adoption, and that's driven by several factors. One is there's much slower moving than the consumer, so the consumer can switch on and off button in what they like and what they don't like. For industrial companies to adopt something, or to adopt a new technology, they need to spend quite a bit of research in understanding what it is, make sure that that technology is gonna be there for the long term. And a lot of these transformations are actually pretty costly. So you really need to be confident that you're gonna get the returns on your investment. The other thing that we've seen is that compute power wasn't really there. So it would take companies days to simulate a process or simulate a product. So really that improvement in compute speeds is creating and opening a whole new market for, for many companies. And the other one is 5G connectivity. So connectivity is very important. You can't have your internet break down during a refinery overhaul. So uh, 5G adoption is really gonna drive another layer of, like once you have uh, reliable internet with low latency, that's really gonna drive adoption of a lot more technologies. So we see AI as a big opportunity, this is a market. This has always been a core theme for us. But five years ago, we didn't really have any actual investment. So we would be doing a ton of research, but there were no companies that were doing AI at scale or providing AI solutions at scale. Today, that picture looks very different. So AI is, has gained broad adoption, for example, in cybersecurity. All of the new cybersecurity next generation products are based on AI. So it's really, machine learning, going through a lot of data, finding anomalies, and that's how you prevent the most advanced cybersecurity attacks today. So we really tried to find well for the companies that provide the hardware and the software for, um, for people to be using this, uh, this technology. And Nvidia is an example of a company where their background was in something else was really in, in graphics, uh, mainly for gaming. But they realized that, hey, actually, this product can be used for AI. So they kept building on it. And now they launched a software offering that can serve as the backbone for companies. So that's really kind of going back to your point, why are companies slow? You didn't really have these products five years ago. They're just getting launched today.
1: And how have you seen, is it is it mainly your expertise or viewpoint that these uh, potential enhancements are more sort of software and AI based, you know, things like how do we maximize oil field production, logistics from point A to point B for whatever the product is, or are you seeing some other technological advancements? And I'm going to use a crude one here just to sort of more physically based. So for example, fracking in the oil and gas space was a huge technological advancement wasn't necessarily software based, but are you seeing both of these types of dimensions and how are they complementing one another? If there are in fact both happening at the same time, are they complementing one another, is one enabling the other to some degree? What are you seeing as that sort of the dimensions of all that? Yeah, techn- so we the- see a
2: lot of overlap. So that's a very good point where really like before we would have like this six, di- six uh, different themes that we would focus on. Right now, a lot of them are actually overlapping. So if you look at one of our other large themes, is decarbonization, a lot of the software technologies are actually enabling companies to come up with new products and to innovate. So things like simulation tools that you can use that are software-based, you can actually use them to come up with better battery technologies. And that way you reduce really the production cost of um, the battery, you enable the cars themselves to be cheaper and, and, and the product to be, to be more economical. So we absolutely see an over overlap across both software, uh, and hardware.
1: Amazing. And, and so how are you, so you're, you've got this pretty wide lens that you're viewing the world under, are there any particular areas or companies? I don't know how much you want to go into the specifics of, of, uh, corporations that sort of focus on areas that are particularly relevant for you. So that's a pretty wide scape of opportunities that you're purviewing. How are you parsing through that and sort of figuring out what's, what's optimal or is it bottom up? Is it top down a bit of both? How's your research team tackling that?
2: So we cover, uh, about hundred companies that follow in these six themes, uh, we do, we do some top down research on the themes. But where we really differentiate ourselves is on the bottom up. Uh, so we will do customer visits. We will talk to competitors. We will visit facilities, do mine tours. We do very um, strict diligence on the fin- on the reported financials. So we're looking for liabilities that are not reported, potential right. risks, and we've been we've uncovered in the past major accounting uh, overstatements environmental liabilities. So we do have the v- very thorough bottoms up, um, but we have a pretty thorough bottoms up process.
1: Fantastic. And, and can you talk a little bit more just one, one more question? Yeah. Can you explicitly discuss the six themes? Cause I'm not sure everybody and all the listeners will, will know that. And then maybe we can circle back for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's perfect, okay.
0: Perfect. Go ahead.
1: Yeah.
2: Absolutely. So digitalization, manufacturing digitalization, that probably is the largest theme in our portfolio. The second theme would be decarbonization and the environment. The third would be robotics and automation. AI would be fourth. And fifth is space exploration. Sixth is photonics. So as you can see, a lot of our opportunities or what we talked about are really more into the number one through four themes. Right. Space exploration is one where we're doing a lot of work on we think it's going to be a huge market but there is really no companies today that have scale generate cash flow have proven unit economics and business models that we can really underwrite and and same thing with photonics there is a lot of inform- there is a lot of innovation going on in 3d printing but we are looking really looking for companies that have dominant market share that have a differentiated product so uh, we're not really. The market is still too early right. to uh, to have those types of opportunities. And
0: photonics, you mean even that would include something like quantum computing and is, yeah, yeah. So
2: there would be. It would mostly be yeah. So like today, it would mostly be 3D printing is the largest right. kind of like use case uh, use case for it. But yeah, like the, it has a lot wider wider applications. But back to the point of kind of like the publicly way publicly traded companies that we can invest in these are really not the sweet spot of what we're looking for. We're really looking for like a few billion right. dollars of enterprise value, a billion plus in, in revenues. That's really kind of the established companies. They're, all of them are pretty risky. Pretty much everything you do in technology, like you really need to stay ahead of the game, but at least they have proven uh, business models and economics.
0: I noticed that in your ETF, you, you hold... Uh... I think your eighth, seventh or eighth largest holding is Cameco. So not really a technology stock or, or technology related, but related to your themes, obviously. And, and, yes, and look, how, and how far, and so that would be related
2: to our energy yeah. transition. Right. Uh, theme. We really, uh, like nuclear as a fuel, um, basically has many benefits in a balanced energy policy. We think people underestimate the aspect that, um. Nuclear and uranium is really small percent of the total production cost to, to generate the electricity, and therefore small changes or even large changes in prices of the fuel will not really change the price of the electricity generated so that that level of energy security that it cannot we believe makes it a core um, core fuel to have in your uh, in your uh, portfolio
0: yeah, very very interesting yeah, we, how, we, how you've you've got this unconstrained approach uh you know across these six themes yeah you we had we had nick picard
1: obviously he's uh he runs uh the uranium fund in canada uh for horizons on talking about that very um uh, that very fact that you know Uranium prices can triple and it has no impact on the cost of the electrons coming out the other end of the, of the fuel uh, of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, electron maker, if you will, the power plant. Is there anything else that's particularly exciting in the uranium space? So we've got this, we've got this, um, obviously a zero, a zero carbon, close to zero carbon, you have to build the plant and all that good stuff. And you have a, you have a uranium mine to, to figure out what to do with the ESG concerns on. So there's, there's not zero hair on that, but there's a little bit. But what are the other uh main facts that make you so um sort of bullish on uranium and, and that as an energy source? So low carbon, uh low cost uh of uh, to output ratio, what else is on your list there?
2: Well the other aspect that we really like is that this has been a fuel that's been largely ignored. So the if you look at the supply-demand dynamics, this market has been in oversupply since the Fukushima yeah. disaster. So the producers have been able to bring it into balance, even with demand being flattish to, to declining in, in some regions. So really, even prior to the geopolitical concerns, this market was more or less in balance with some potential upside. Now you add geopolitics on top of it, and all of these countries that have abandoned nuclear energy are now will now have to come to the drawing board and, and reassess it. So we think there is going to be more and more countries that, have to take a look at it in a different way that they had been previously uh, looking. And China has been a a huge driver for, for demand. They just announced six new nuclear reactors. We think that's gonna keep surprising um, to the upside just because of the benefits we, we talked about.
1: So it's a nice decarbonization play as well. Um, and
0: so, Oh, yeah, I love it. What, what, I just, what, yeah. I love, I love it, the, how, I love, what I love is the, the unintended consequence of, you know, the, the, the play on the unintended consequence of ESG. Uh, and I, you know, we realize like I realize that you, you're also focusing on, on the actual technological efforts that are being made to decarbonize, but it's interesting how, you know, I've talked about, uh, you know, in past conversations we've talked about, well, I've talked about. You know germany and and you know it's um you know misfiring in terms of closing down half of its nuclear plants a decade ago and now finding itself you know dependent on france for a lot of electrical generation uh which ironically is nuclear and you know (laughs) yeah that's
2: that's that is the those are like the funny things that get get um generated as a side effect of uh yeah
0: but you and you can see where Germany would now, you know, they they've curtailed their plans to mothball their their nuclear, and you can see where where now they might, you know, they're actually forced into a situation where they have to, you know, reconsider, uh, you know, developing new new plants or reopening their old plants. So. Yes,
2: yeah. exactly. The the reason they gave is that they don't have the fuel supply. So I mean that's a lot easily solvable problem yeah. than the other fuel supply that they need. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think everybody's going to be coming back to the drawing board, yeah. um, especially for these plans that don't necessarily, they're not like at the end of life or anything like that, um, they can
0: still be, be operating. And in the meantime, they're ripping up the countryside for coal with these, yeah, with, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> with these speaking, speaking <laughs> of unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So. And and extending that unintended consequence, are you seeing anything in other, any other areas where you've seen an underinvestment? So we had Fukushima, we had a significant underinvestment in that whole area on uh, the supply side and a shutting down to the demand side, but now that's starting to rectify. Have you seen any consequences of ESG in that, in more traditional fuels, more hydrocarbon-based fuels in the oil and gas space? Anything there that you can triangulate as similar or that you're keeping your eye on in for the portfolio?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we think the whole metals and mining space has been underinvested in. And the reason is because we had a, a small industrial recession in 15 and 16. As And as things were starting to improve, COVID hit, so people really didn't get the chance to build capacity and invest in, in material. So that's why you're seeing commodities, even with small surprises in demand uh, or small supply shocks, they're like all prices are sky, skyrocketing. So another area we really like is lithium, mm-hmm. um, lithium mining. And mm-hmm. this is a similar, a similar situation to, um, to nuclear where the market has been extremely volatile in the past. Because even though everybody is interested in electric vehicles, you didn't have a fleet of vehicles that lithium is really supplying, um, like is really adding to, right? So you have all these expectations of um, of EVs coming, but no real demand. So the market was pretty tight, then went into a complete oversupply, and then COVID hit, and that made it even uh, even worse. And that's another area where. We think now with oil prices where they are and with gasoline prices where they are, EVs are two times more economic on an operating basis. So that really makes the case for electric vehicles today and and the case for lithium. So prices have like skyrocket. Now, I think a mistake that people make is looking at the spot price. It's similar in the uranium market as well in that sense. Uh, because the contracted price will is generally lower, but it's a lot more stable, so you can figure out basically at what level these companies are contracting, and therefore model that out into your, in, your, in your DCF model and come up with pretty pretty uh, solid um, upside and price targets. So yeah, so lithium is another area. We like the other commodities, like copper is, is an example, but the issue is that it's very economically sensitive. And there is a lot of uncertainty in the economy today right. uh, with rates increasing, with China shutting down. But that is an area that, that we've been invested in in the past. It's an area that we're going to come, come back to. But we would like to see a little bit more clarity on the demand side uh, to be able to underwrite uh, an investment.
1: Speaking of inflation and rates and, and economic slowdown, how are you viewing that currently? Is is the is the new sort of effective discounted cash flow rate? Has it been factored in, in your opinion? Do we have more, uh, do we have more pain to go through? Because on certainly on the resource side, your discounted cash flow is offset a little bit by the um uh, the robustness in the commodity price. So commodities are doing well because the commodities are up in price and they create larger cash flows. And so when you do this discount on on the mechanism you have you have things that are creating profits to offset the reduction in valuations. on the tech side when we're more in the digitization AI cyberspace we're kind of in real tech land and we've seen a pretty significant contraction in multiples I think due to the changes in rates where where do you stand on that how are you communicating with investors and clients to as to where we are in the cycle and how you think that's going to play out
2: yeah absolutely so rates have definitely been the largest headwind for technology uh, this year, and it's a real fundamental headwind, right? Like when you, when we analyze companies, it makes a big difference if you're using a 1% risk free rate or a 3% risk free right. rate. So what we see today <clears throat> is that the currently announced hikes and the tenure at 3%, that's already priced in the stocks. Now, the question is, is there going to be more than that right like can the 10 year go to five percent we don't think that's pressed in but we also don't think that that's very likely and then the other point i would make just because the economy is not strong enough so at some point the fed will have to pull back if if they're not seeing the the response right. that they're that they're expecting and then the other thing i'd point out is in an extreme scenario say for example the fed rate is at 10 percent right that would imply that there is a problem with the u.s economy right so it's not necessarily a problem with the tech stock in focus so i would almost much rather own a stock like nvidia or autodesk or somebody that's generating cash flow and has a technology that's going to be there for a long time rather than uh investing like a 10 percent yield on a government bond right so there is a level of um, this is a risk-free rate, but if the 10-year stops being a proxy for risk-free, is that really the right metric that people should be using in their models? So we think like using a 3% rate is a good level. It's a long-term level for, for modeling, but there is certainly um, risk, especially in the near term. If, if rates go up, like you will see it reflected in valuations
1: yeah and and people should know that and understand that and hey um if we look at it from where it was in november um you know those technology stocks represent a a pretty significant discount so all of that growth that was priced in last november that you paid for up front now we've had that growth kind of push out into the future a little bit so you know you've got a little bit more downside protection if you're looking at making investments today in these types of vehicles all things being equal and Nobody knows where the rates where where rates are going to go and whatnot. So, you know, that that's a progn- prognostication that, uh, we can leave for the financial media to speculate <laughs> on with certainty, um, <laughs> where there is none. Uh, so maybe we can jump in a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit of digitization, decarbonization, robotics, AI, so I, I look at the portfolio and I don't see Palantir. And I, and I'm not, I'm not in this space, but my head tilts and I wonder why.
2: Well, we actually do on a little bit of Palantir, Oh, you do? Okay. Uh, but the, the reason why it's not a top position for us is because their business model is not as scalable as the rest. So if you look at some of our top holdings, the businesses just scale themselves in Palantir's case, each contract they win, they actually need to negotiate, talk to the company, pitch the value-add. Uh, and that's really that really already creates a lot more friction than if you have a technology like Snowflake, mm-hmm. where anybody, like we use it today, where we're like, okay, you create an account, um, you get direct access to the cloud, you can store your data, you can run analytics. Uh, so it's a lot more scalable and with a lot less friction. So that would be the one um, the, the one pushback that I'd say for Palantir, but on the flip side, they have a pretty solid defense business. And that's the reason why we initiated the position, uh, more recently, um, over the past few weeks. Um, uh, and, 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 basically we feel like defense is going to go through a cycle. Uh, and we're trying to find good, uh, good stories there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the case for, for Palantir.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Yep. Learning right there, I'm learning.
0: So uh, across, um, (laughs) Ivana, across your themes, uh, it's pretty clear now in our conversation that that you have both the some of the direct plays, but you also have a lot of upstream plays as well. Like like in the uranium story, you have you have Cameco, and then uh, do you have any um, uh, in the in the in? I I don't want to necessarily focus all of our conversation on uranium, but uh, are there any, are there any uranium, uh, related plays like nuclear power or, um, you know, these, uh, modular reactors, is there anything like that in, in your portfolio that goes along with the commodity itself or the producers?
2: Nothing, nothing in the current portfolio, just because a lot of these companies are not large enough for us right. to be investing in. So there is some interesting technologies, but a lot of them are not, uh, at the scale that w- where we can comfortably underwrite, uh, underwrite that position. But really looking across, up and down the value chain or up and down the, the supply chain is exactly what we do. So you will see the same pattern um, applied to traditional industrials, right. right? Like sometimes there would be a traditional industrial company that has cool technologies, like Transdime is an example. So we like the reopening trade, uh, but airlines have become a little bit tricky to invest in because oil price could have further upside from here, right? And uh, that's a big part of their cost structure. So it's really become a game of timing oil price versus with somebody like Transdime, they provide components for the aircraft and they have very solid margins. They made cash flow even through the COVID pandemic. So we like that type of story where like we can play the reopening, but we also have the protection uh, from the from the cash flows, so we do a lot of that, like going up the supply chain and going um, going down the supply chain. And going into this year, we actually had a lot more traditional, like value plays or more traditional industri- industrial uh, companies. But what happened was through this through this downturn, those held up a lot better versus the growth stocks got just completely destroyed. So. If we look at the upside downside in, in the technology space, we saw limited upside, limited downside, but still some, right? Like there's still downside to like potential for higher rates, uh, but like they could be two, three times um, return opportunities versus for industrials, we saw good upside, but also the economy is not really going to be that strong. So decent amount of downside. So we always try to assess the upside downside when we make a, uh, when we make an investment decision. And at this point in time, our portfolio is a little more growth weighted just where stocks are today. Uh, but that could definitely change as, uh, as a lot of the industrial stocks are getting hit right now. So that is uh, a, an area we're like, focused on and trying to pick out good businesses at a discount.
0: Are you limited to the themes or the segments, the sectors that, that you have represented in the strategy right now? Uh, or are you free to move, uh, in and out of different styles or, uh, you know, companies or, uh, producers like, like for example, Cameco, uh, you know, being, a, an extraordinary item in, in your portfolio, are you able to do that freely or, or are there, are there constraints to what you can include in your portfolio?
2: So we are able to move freely. We have no constraints from that perspective. We have concentration limits, so we can't be overly focused on one subsector. So we're pretty diversified across a range of industries and, and, and markets. But yeah, absolutely. We're trying to, it's by design, trying to be able to move to where we find the best alpha opportunities.
1: And, and maybe you could walk us through the, the portfolio construction. So we we've talked a little bit about the specific names. Finding that, that hidden gem, uh, transitioning between, you know, some areas that have, may have lower valuation or just lower betas versus higher betas. Uh, but you know, you've got a portfolio that's sort of 60% ish in the top 10. That's a very conviction weighted portfolio. Got lots of active share there. I, I personally, that's the way I would like to invest. If you're, you know, if you want a broad market index, go get it for five basis points. You're looking for someone to do the work and find these significant growth opportunities and, and steward them as they grow. So, so how do you think about that in the portfolio construction? And so, you know, you've got the different themes, something qualifies, and then something unique and very different qualifies, are you, or are you actively looking for those unique diversifiers to so the portfolio? we saying, oh, I've got enough tech digitization AI I actually need some plays that behave a little bit differently so, so walk us through the portfolio construction side
2: so yes yeah, so the portfolio is is by design very concentrated and it is filed as a concentrated strategy uh, I don't that's not a very common um, feature right. the indices are very very diversified um, so what we're trying to do is find the best ideas so really like if you when when people invest, this is just one component of your portfolio. So nobody should really be like putting all their money yeah. in industrial technology. <laughs> or uh, So so we view our products as a small part of a portfolio and therefore we are overly concentrated to our high conviction ideas. In terms of diversification and different styles, we try to be diversified across uh, teams. So we will... Right now we have over, um, we're a little overexposed to like cybersecurity, for example, so we would try not to have more, more of that specific theme. Uh, but we are like, there is no like limitations in terms of the portfolio, portfolio construction. So if there is a theme that we particularly like, we can definitely have uh, larger exposure. And, and the way we mitigate risk is not necessarily by diversification. But by doing fundamental research and picking stocks that do have scale, as I talked about, volume in terms of trading volume, right? So we try to pick ideas that are kind of staples and leaders in their respective, uh, respective markets. So, there, yeah, there is always risk. Uh, and these are all very risky investments, um, I, I'd, I'd add. Uh, but yeah, we try to find the ones that we think uh, are gonna generate differentiated returns.
1: So the the explore part of the portfolio leave the core to the other folks, <laughs> and uh, and you know concentrated bet bets. Anything specific in your portfolio today that you feel is particularly under the radar or not? And maybe you'd want to tell this. So obviously, if you had something that you had a small position in, it was under the radar don't tell us get your full position but anything that you've got your sort of full position on where you're looking at it saying this is particularly opportune i think not very many people understand the way we're looking at you know industry sector a or you know stock x if you want to mention a specific situation but but up to you as to how you want to frame that but anything out there that's particularly interesting
2: I mean, nothing really to call out. Uh, I think all of our teams are are, are pretty interesting. Really, the main, the main um, aspect here is how interested people are in adding risk to their portfolio on the growth side. We're definitely overweight growth. We think this will, looking back, uh, be to 2022, will end up being a great time to have been investing in. In growth stocks, so yep. whether it's today or in three months from now, like we can't really call the bottom. But I think the uh, the underlying theme that we see across the portfolio and, and where most opportunities are in this uh, are in these beaten down growth stocks that really do have uh, either their cash flow generative or they have very strong gross margins and unit economics. I think that's an area where people are kind of shying away and and going more towards the mega caps. But there is really a set of stocks where you don't necessarily have strong free cash flow yields, but the gross margins are really strong. So if the company wanted to run it for cash flow generation, they could. So we really like that I think that's kind of maybe the most underappreciated uh, part of uh, of of technology and industrial technology more specifically, but yeah, I think the the entire portfolio. Uh, has uh, has decent amount of upside, and we cycle through ideas quite a bit. So if we're not seeing the upside uh, that we're expecting, we will just rotate out of that and into other ideas.
0: In a past uh, interview that you that you did recently, you talked about the example of General Electric as a company that had gone, and then you know, of course, General Electric uh, you know fell uh, pretty sharply and and then recovered on a reorganization. Um, do you have any examples? Uh, I, I, it was a particularly interesting one because GE transformed itself into, into, uh, uh as you said, a, a high end aviation, uh, business uh, among other things. Um, but do you see any other, uh, stories like that, that are, that are interesting reorganization stories within your portfolio?
2: Not necessarily today. I'd say G is probably we we don't own G right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, just for full disclosure. Um but not not necessarily big uh, big turnarounds. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, other than the fact that, that technology stocks have have uh you know gone through this revaluation this year. Um that's what I mean that's what that's Yeah, I
2: think that's really that's <laughs> yeah. really been the been the trade. I mean there is few stocks that are on my radar for transformation. One would be Facebook for sure. Basically they um, are a play on uh, on the metaverse, right? Like people really got excited about that, but they don't necessarily have the technology to back <laughs> to back that yeah. and we think the metaverse is going to be a really uh, promising opportunity. But the question is, what is the actual strategy, right? So now that the stock is down to attractive valuation levels, the question is, is there a story? Because we don't necessarily just invest on in valuation. Like there needs to be some sort right. of a transformation for yourself, some sort of a thesis. Um, so yeah, that's what we're kind of, that's maybe one that we're, we're watching, but for the most part, the industrial technology stocks that have been getting hit. They haven't necessarily had earnings downside. So it's not been the case where things are completely falling out of um the the fundamentals are completely falling apart and you're there is transformation opportunities. It's really more been rates driven decline. Yes. So
1: it's the little uh, R. Yeah. It's that darn little R in the <laughs> discount cash flow calculation. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, hate that little yeah. R. Well, or yeah, you like it, whatever. <laughs> Does it, I, I wonder if we could, I want to come back to some yeah. of the, I want to get to some of the research that you published, but before we go there and we've talked about the portfolio and the approach and the, and the five sectors and some of the sort of market dynamics that are currently here, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about the firm, how you've set it up, how you're, you know, you're sharing research. What are the pros and cons with that, that mindset that you've sort of, endured or experienced, endured is probably the word better the worst word, the, that you've experienced as you've started with that. And how did you come to the conclusion? Or how did you think of, hey, let's, let's get out there. I'm going to start my ETF. Yeah. I'm going to share research more openly. I'm going to have that, you know, seems to be a theme. There's a few companies doing that. We do that. We share a lot of our research. And so take me through the journey of how you came to that decision and what the pros and cons have been thus far.
2: Yeah, sounds great. So my background, as I said, was doing research. So I spent 10 years on the buy side investing in companies and the investments were very similar to what I described, very fundamental, high conviction. Uh, And I did that for about 10 years. And then I spent a few years on the sell side at Deutsche Bank and Gordon Haskett, where I published research and I managed the portfolio while I was at Gordon Haskett of um, industrial technology idea, just with my with my personal money. So this would not necessarily be the companies that I was researching. They would be companies that play up and down the supply chain. So that portfolio grew in size to a point where I, w- the, I was asking the question: Well, is this really my optimal setup, or should I really be just focusing on the portfolio and publishing the research? Um, so people can stay informed. So mm-hmm. I really like that. Um, last because a lot of the research that I do as well is pretty open. So I do talk to a lot of competitors. I talk to, I go to industry conferences, so I meet a lot of people. So in a way it helps when I publish research, people come to me and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I've noticed the same thing that they have this new product, or I noticed the same thing that they're like, that they could have a new competitor. So. Um, I think that aspect uh, of the, of the research being open and available for everybody is definitely kind of core to the way I perform the research.
1: And what have been the pros and cons of that, of being so open with the research? Have you, has it all been uh, sunshine and rainbows or, you know, is there, there's there a price to sharing everything, but what's your sense there?
2: I mean, my experience so far has been pretty, pretty positive. Yeah. I don't know that there is any. That there is any cons so i think it's important for investors to to stay informed i think the way our strategies we don't necessarily we're not a typical investment advisor where we have clients that we really advise on things so um, it's really more about learning and being comfortable with the space on your own and then if you do like what we're doing you can always explore what's one of our public products. So that's really like the, our setup is so that it is important for people to learn about the space before they invest, um, just so they can know what to expect in terms of like the risks and, and opportunities.
1: Amazing. Yeah. And then a couple of recent pieces that you've got out now, I think are, are a bit, bit of fun. Uh, one you've touched on with the metaverse and, uh, Facebook, so, um, which I I love this space. What are what are your um what are your conclusions from digging in? How how real is the space? How long is it? How relevant is it in a in a timeliness fashion? Who are going to be the big players? What are your what are your thoughts?
2: We believe the metaverse is going to be a huge opportunity. We think we're in the very early innings of it. So, we've been trying to stay focused on companies that provide the building blocks rather than platforms themselves. So what, what this means is that in order for you to create a metaverse or to create 3d content, you need tools and, and hardware, right? So companies like Nvidia will provide the GPUs that run, run something like a metaverse. They recently launched a product called Omniverse that allows creators and engineers to combine all of their software tools and create these interactive experiences. And another company that that we like is Unity, which is traditionally been used as a gaming platform. So if you're making any independent game today, especially if it is on a mobile device, it's most likely built on a a Unity um, platform. So now the company can take that platform and use it as a as a building block for building a metaverse, so some of the metaverses built today, like Sandbox, for example, are actually built on this gaming gaming platform. So we think in the long term there is going to be huge opportunity. We find the in- industrial aspect of the metaverse underappreciated. We don't hear many people talking about that, but we think that that's a pretty easy use case where companies started talking about industry 4.0, industrial companies, 10 years ago, but the technology wasn't there uh, to bake it. And today, with all these tools, like the Omniverse that I talked about, companies can really start very easily creating digital twins of their operations that they can then use to um, optimize their, their operations, cut cost, um and so on. So I think it's going to be a very important technology. We are, fo- we are focused more on that building blocks and the industrial side but there is opportunities across across the board
0: yeah it's one of those areas that that the all the people with the assets don't haven't really invested much time understanding or or you know it's it's are it's, you are
1: you talking about warren and Charlie? Yeah specifically is that because they, oh, yeah, the, no, yeah, they, 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 they don't like this space at all <laughs> it's like it's like steroidal cancer infected on a you well know. it's kind of
0: like it's kind of like you know the <laughs> same people who said who needs a computer in their home yes right? and and uh yeah. although i you i know. think warren did say that. yeah yeah
2: <laughs> yeah it's, it's gonna be interesting to see because i think people misunderstand what it means yeah right it doesn't mean that like okay no more no more social interactions we're all going to be going in virtual um coffee shops right there is real use cases for for this so i think it's a lot of it is going to depend on on the use case and uh yeah i feel like i feel like a lot of what's been developed so far is maybe not as high quality as some of the investors would would like, so they kind of shy away from it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where it ends. I think there's going to be yeah. a lot of opportunity for
1: yeah well, uh,
2: for development. And I think you brought up a good point on M A. A lot of the large companies have pretty strong, like the large tech companies have pretty strong cash flows, but they're maybe a little have lagged a little bit behind on on staying current with technology and staying current with with trends. So we see M&A as a big uh, potential here for them to um, try to acquire some of these companies now with, with valuations where, where they are. And that could be really transformational. Like if you can buy few companies, few of these like growth stocks uh, that are down 50, 60% from their peak, that in itself can create a lot of value for, for shareholders.
1: Yeah, especially when you're long on cash flow and short on sort of innovation growth, yeah. and new growth areas so yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense for for that to start to occur is there anything that you could share with everybody to help them bridge the gap to what the metaverse can be versus you know this etherealness that yeah. everyone's like well we're not all going to gather at a some bar stool at a thing and i'm like well yeah you are if you're at a video game tournament and and in uh, yeah there'll be advertising and yes there'll be a person there from whatever brand you could imagine but can you help make it more real than that? I mean, that's my silly example. Well, that's but that's already I'm happening, sure there's right? So many more. I mean, that's already that's yeah.
0: already happening. I've heard so many conversations yeah. now around this where you know, the talk is about how you know Gen Z are are you know meeting up. they're having meetups in the games, in the platforms, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. their favorite game. and and so if that's if that's the vision of the future that that uh, you know, the metaverse people, are are you know witnessing? Uh, then, you know that that seems to be already starting, and that's that's kind of what they're building or trying to build on, is let let's make that world more virtual and let's make it more you know as realistic as we can, so that they they want to do that even more.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What well, there is a lot of use. We just published uh, a few months ago a metaverse primer on our website. It's pretty short. Just gives kind of an overview of uh, of what. How we think about the metaverse, and there is definitely real use cases today from the industrial side. So one example is BMW uh, created a um, digital twin of one of their manufacturing operations based on the NVIDIA Omniverse platform, and they said that they achieved thirty uh, percent savings, in- improvement in throughput. So these things are real. They just they just take time for for them to get. Um, get broader adoption and as well the other the other technology that's pretty interesting that's somewhat related to the metaverse but it could really help it take uh, uh, go to the next level is blockchain technology right so now you have this um this technology that enables you to identify assets in a way that you were not able to identify and encrypt before so we believe these smart contracts play a, a pretty significant role in in building the metaverse and they're going to really uh help enable a lot of these uh these experiences
1: that is amazing i'm Mm -hmm. excited for that i think i think that amplifies the uh, social connections too because when uh, and and also research connections so you're gonna you know you're gonna create a plan and you're gonna look at it through the lens of how do i increase efficiencies that's and you don't have to actually create the plant that's pretty interesting yeah, um, yeah, and, and you can collaborate
2: can, can, with people from different parts of the world. world. You're all working on the same file. Um, yeah, these things were not possible uh, two three years ago and are possible today. So there is definitely value to it. Now, some people have some crazy projections in terms of, the, of what the market will ultimately, the market size will be. Uh, I think the NVIDIA CEO said that he thinks the economy could be larger than our current economy. I think it's too early to tell what... Ultimately, the size will be, yeah. but we're definitely seeing use cases and adoption. So I think that's an encouraging sign that there is maybe
0: more to come.
1: Yeah, there's a reality to this. The so, The other thing before, go ahead. Yeah, I, I,
0: you're, um, you know, during the pandemic, there was a number of, you know, of course, you know, we saw how the pandemic disrupted supply chains, Um for one, and then secondly, there was also a number of cyber attacks that happened during that time, and you know, with with both situations being uh, sort of on the same playing field in the end, where where you know a supply chain disruption happens because of shutdowns, or a shutdown happens because of a hack. Um, the cybersecurity theme is another theme that you've spent a fair bit of time on. Um, Maybe talk about that, because I think I think that's also another area where where the understanding is really um, it's it's under you know, or misunderstood or not fully understood just how critical this risk is.
2: Cybersecurity, especially post this geopolitical concern, has definitely become more of a focus. But even without I think the important thing to understand is that even without geopolitics, the real change that's happening is that. Companies used to have all their data in one central location, and now the data is all over the place, and their employees are all, all, all over the place. So that's just a completely different change in architecture of how you're doing business. So that increases the number of vulnerabilities by multiples, right? right. It's not double. So the so cybersecurity solutions that people used two, three, five years ago are no no longer relevant. So you have new companies coming up with innovative solutions and the market is pretty fragmented. So it's not like you can say, oh, I'm just going to do research on this one company and that's going to be the solve all the cybersecurity problems. So companies work together all the time. So you have endpoint security. Those would be uh, companies like CrowdStrike, Sentinel One. Those are the, the innovators. And then you have Cloud security, which would be a company like Zscaler, so they will actually uh, secure your access to the cloud or workload, ac- the the access between different workloads in the cloud. So there is just an ecosystem of providers, all doing slightly different things, but the majority of them, or at least the ones that are doing innovative solutions, have pretty good have pretty good stories. So the market itself is growing at a double digit cager. So it's a pretty interesting space because if you're outgrowing the market by 500, 600 basis points, makes it for very, very solid, um, solid opportunities there. So, yeah, it's another one where we did a primer. It's on our website uh, and just kind of provides a basic lay of the land of what are the areas that we find to be most, most attractive.
1: Um, with that kind of uh, outside potential growth, uh, are you seeing valuations reflecting that, or is this a, a really interesting area um, from the balance of uh, of growth and price paid?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we don't see the valuations reflected in it because these are growth stocks again, right? So they're caught mm-hmm. up in the same same sell off that everybody else is facing, while their fundamentals are significantly improving. So. We don't see them like down 80%, like some of the consumer tech is down. So they're just kind of down more in line with, with the market. But we see this as a huge opportunity. So it's a pretty significant part of our portfolio and, and, and focus. And it's exactly because of what you described. Fundamentals have significantly improved while the valuations have compressed just because of uh, where rates are today.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's this there's this issue of of uh, you know national security is one, but then there's also the you know the need to protect supply chains. Uh, We saw what you know we saw what a physical disruption did to supply chains and and how that you know brought inflation forward. But you know if if a uh, a foreign attack, a foreign cyber attack on on key infrastructure for example like the pipeline hack that happened last year uh is you know if, if it happens in any in any uh you know greater frequency the disruption to the economy is massive
2: some of the some of the management teams that we talk to are highlighting the point that previously a lot of these attacks would be ransom based so so yeah. the attacker would be just wanting uh to get a payment which is not good but at least it's solvable It's a lot worse what we're seeing today where people are trying to inflict pain, right? So it's not even about like just payment. They just wanna cause disruption of your system in a geopolitical um, uncertainty. So that's really what we've been hearing from cybersecurity management teams where their customers are coming to them and it's really like not even an option for it not to be secure. They're not doing the math. Oh, how much does it cost? to protect versus how much I would need to pay out, it's really more like this needs to be as secure as possible and and set up as as well as as possible. The other one is the SEC is requiring companies to disclose cybersecurity attacks. And that's a big deal because you don't want to be the one with the loose security system, right? So I think it's putting pressure on management teams to make sure that they're doing the best the best they can
0: we get at least 10 or 15 attacks a day on our on just on our website which is not critical infrastructure but of course if it actually succeeded um you know we we as a company would be in trouble but it's it's a daily attack and you know on a monthly you know i think in the worst month we had we had something like fifty thousand attempts to get into our 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 server yeah i mean we have it we have it firewalled and redundant. And, you know, we have all these different measures in place in order to prevent these kinds of brute force attacks and password attacks. It's not, again, it's not, we're not, we're not harboring sensitive data, but, but, uh, you know, just by seeing that firsthand happening on our website makes me realize, you know, this is, this is something that most people just take for granted unless they've actually experienced it themselves. Uh, I'm sitting wondering why am I? You know why are we getting fifty thousand, you know, attempts to to access our for our, our back end? <laughs> you know, yeah, right? no, absolutely. Like I but, think
2: attacks used to be focused on large corporations, yeah, and now it's it's everything. So the people realize, the hackers realize that mid-sized companies maybe don't have the the security systems in place compared to yeah. compared to larger enterprises. So everybody is basically. Uh, a target.
0: Yeah, so if we're getting 50,000 attacks on them in a, in a month, how many attacks are S&P 500 companies getting on a regular, yep. you know, on a regular basis from from you know, offshore. So you you see that 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 just for me that just heightens the opportunity or or the need for it. The need for cybersecurity. And we're not talking about Norton or 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 you know, McAfee, we're not talking about antivirus on PCs, but of course everybody should have those things running. But, but when, when companies are vulnerable and, and key infrastructure is vulnerable to cyber attacks, you can see where, where, you know, the, the opportunity is only going to increase in value over the long-term. I agree. I just wondered if there was any fun stories that Ivana
1: wanted to share from her days on the hedge fund side yeah, with places absolutely. like Tiger or Millennium or Citadel or See, you, Kepner. You, you deliberately I want avoid... to, I wanted. I wanted. <laughs> I want it, I want it, left it to the end, but I want to, I want to know. I, I want
0: to know yeah, if Yeah, I'll share fun a fun one happened. from, from yes, Deutsche Bank. Yeah, yeah. Perfect.
2: Where we, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we were basically the team that called the downfall of the stock, uh, the G-Stock. So it was funny that you mentioned oh, it, okay. uh, mentioned it before, we basically... Went through the financials, and we were like, "Wait a minute! This is not what people think it is," uh, because they would disclose earnings that were not really comparable to the way other companies disclose earnings. So, when you comp- when you do like EPS type calculation, none of those profits were actually real. They were accounting profits based on based on um, some assumptions, and then. We downgraded the stock and that followed with, um, with them actually and the accounting standard change. So they were like, oh no, you actually have to report as any other company. Um, and that caused a huge, um, uh, uh, decline, uh, decline in the stocks, price. Right? So that was probably one of the most fun projects that, <laughs> that I worked on. And then the other one was 3M and their PFAS liability. So we were basically the first team to uncover a gigantic, like, but it could potentially be a $100 billion liability uh, for the company where, um, where like nobody, like it was disclosed, but not really. Like you could see like the cases, just the mentions in the, in the 10K, um, increasing. So we're like, oh, maybe we should like dig into this. So we emailed the company. We didn't hear back. We're like, oh. That's a sign, <laughs> like, if you in the company. Come on, there. guys, you
1: got to get back right away. If you have yeah. something to hide, you can't hide yes. it. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs>
2: so we did a huge, like, deep dive, went to court hearings. I mean, this thing is everywhere. Like, it's basically, yeah. it's unintentional, right? Like, it's unclear who knew what, when. That's still kind of up to debate. But what's clear is that it needs to be cleaned up. So um, 3M was the the only manufacturer for several number of years and then they decided to stop and then Dupont was like no maybe yeah. we'll do it you don't <laughs> want to do it
0: <laughs> this is yeah i mean so, so just to be clear it, like was yeah
2: a bit surreal in yeah. terms of uh, of what went on this is the dark but, you're you're just
0: you're, you're, just to be clear just you're talking about the the dark waters story yeah, yeah exactly, so dark yeah. waters
2: is part of it. Yeah. yeah, so basically there is few branches that it's really become uh, like a, a big problem. One is this foam, F. it's called, that's part of um, um, firefighting foam. Right. So basically every airport or every location where firefighting foam has been used is contaminated. So it's become a huge liability for the DOD, right, because they have all these sites where they do training. Um, so that's one part, and then another one would be contamination from sites. So the site itself could be, um, could like you could have had like leakage. So um, the case with the dark waters that was close to one of the DuPont's manufacturing facilities, right? Uh, right, but it's not isolated to there. It's literally everywhere where this uh, product has uh, has been used. I hate Sometimes watching those in things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I. I grew up near Love Canal. That's uh, it's, it's yeah. Uh, in, industrials. Yeah. They're you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. Exactly.
0: Anyway, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a great place. Ivana, where can people find you, your company?
2: So I'm on Twitter. The handle is at Ivana Spear and LinkedIn as well.
1: Perfect. And the website address?
2: Yeah, spear-invest.com.
1: And we got to, we got to pump up her followers,
0: everybody. Let's go, go find her on Twitter and give her a Absolutely. follow. Absolutely. Uh, fascinating conversation, Ivana. Thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah. thank
2: you guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks again.